My career sucks. Sex just isn't the same. What's my purpose? Where did this fat come from? My relationship is killing me. I'll never be happy. My debt is piling up. I'll never find love. Why can't I be like other gay guys? Hey guys, it's time to get a grip, stop whining, make a bold move, and do something amazing with your 40-plus gay life. Let's get to the show with your tell-it-like-it-is host, Rick Clemens, who does his best to never act like a dick or a diva unless you act like one first. You can't be gay. That's disgusting. Oh my gosh, if you're gay, God is going to hate you and you're going to go to hell. And I know I'm not saying this to most of the listeners, because in some way, shape or form, you've already heard these words before. And I'm not saying it to like surprise you, shock you or anything. And even as a guy that's over 40, we still live with some of these tentacles of gosh, I thought I was beyond this, but every once in a while, this will always show up in some way, shape or form in our lives. And then we're like, right back to that moment when we told our parents we were gay, or we came out of the closet to other people, even if it meant taking a stand for something you really, truly believed in. And that's what we're talking about today on 40 plus gay men, gay talk. I am Rick Clemens, your host. And before we dive in, I just want to remind you that once a month, we have these beautiful opportunities to get together and chat as gay men. The first Monday of every month is the 40 plus chat. And if you are interested in joining us, just go to rickclemens.com, go to the chats, or you can go to 40 plus gay men's chats.com, or you can go to gay men's chats.com. Any of those will get you here. But today, what I want to dive into with my guest is about how we've been judged and how to not judge ourselves and his journey to come out of the closet. His name is James Merrick. He's just recently released a book, the end of September, and here we are already in December. But this might be something for somebody on your list who may need to hear the story and how to have faith and move themselves forward. And I'm so looking forward to having this conversation as a guy who came out late in life with another man who came out late in life. And James, I just want to say welcome to the podcast, man. I'm so looking forward to chatting and just kind of walking through your journey and the book and even sharing a little, we're going to share a little bit of a snippet out of the book. Um, But thanks for being here, man. I truly appreciate you joining me today. It's a pleasure to be here with you, Rick. And thanks for the invitation. Of course, of course. So you and I have lived some similar paths. We came out later in life and kind of battled some things along the way. But um, a lot of it is because I think for you, like many of us, there was this religious persecution sort of thing that kind of hung over our head saying, you can't be that, you can't do that. So why don't we kind of start there? I think it kind of started for you as a kid. You saw this in the church world and suddenly it's like, I'm too afraid, I can't be that, correct? Right. Um, I was raised uh, by evangelical parents. And so from the beginning of my lifespan, the um, influence of uh, that type of living where the Bible was the primary uh, guiding um, force behind the family uh, unity, I was expected to conform in many ways that were uh, thought to be prescribed by the Bible. Yeah. And as you went through that, I know I went through it. I was raised Seventh-day Adventist. And there was a lot of times like, okay, I get it. Okay, I won't be this. I won't be this. But every time I said to myself, I won't be this, there was the other side of, but this is who I am. This is who I am. I look at other men and I I get excited. And I'm not talking just the sexual piece. There was just like, I'm attracted. And as much as I tried in my own ways and, you know, dated women, I just couldn't really see myself in that space. How similar was that for you? Well, in my case, uh, Rick, I uh, was raised 
almost as an only child. I have a brother who's eight years younger than I am, but uh, he was 11 years old when I um, got married in a straight ma- marriage. Mm-hmm. And I was primarily um, the only child for most of my childhood and growing up right. as a um, influence of uh, the evangelical um, world that was my parents was really powerful. Uh, I did not have a social circle of friends that where I had other examples on how I might live. For instance, I didn't know someone who was gay until I was in my uh, early teens, uh, uh, actually a little earlier during puberty from 11 years on, I met my first gay friend. Mm. And when you met that person, what, what was something that you're like, oh, what was the thought? Like, oh, this is interesting or are they really weird or, oh, this kind of reminds me of me. What was your reaction? Well, I didn't know anything at all about being gay when I was 11 years old. It just happened by accident that he and I were set next to each other in a seventh grade art class. And I knew him first as just a classmate, but he he talked um, in ways that were sexually arousing. Mm-hmm. which immediately began to draw me to him as a friend. And that friendship went on for a very long time. I had my first uh, very brief uh, sexual encounter with him when I was 11 years old. Wow. And did that kind of spark something new or did it validate for you where you were or did it scare you or all of the above, so to speak? Well, a good, good <laughs> interesting question, because in a way it was a little bit of all of the above, but primarily it was a new and very threatening experience because I'd been taught that any kind of attraction to, to a male would be sinful and I would be condemned for the rest of my life. So mm-hmm. I was torn between the desire to be closer to him not having any images in my mind about what sex uh, behaviors would be, just simply being drawn to him and his friendship. He also had a vocabulary with lots of profanity in in him. Mm -hmm. And I'd never heard profanity in my life because my parents didn't use it. So I was drawn because he was, seemed adventuresome to me. And our, our friendship simply grew based on the fact that he was my first male friend. He was, uh, Uh, He talked in ways that were appealing and that drew me close to him. So I wanted to be with him. And uh, I believe if I could have fallen in love at age 11, he might have been my first candidate. (laughs) That's so interesting because I can relate to so many people now that I can look back on it. So many people in my life that I latched onto, so to speak, because either they were, as you say, they were the adventure. They were the fantasy in my head. Uh, they were the persons like, oh, I could be like them. And I, my best friend in high school <clears throat> was definitely that guy. Um, I was totally in love with him. I knew I, I knew I was infatuated with him in high school, but I did everything under the sun to like protect, you know, that image, which now a lot of my high school friends like we all knew, man, we, we knew who you were. We knew what you were. But it was interesting to see him and a few other people as like, they were the guys that like really, truly pushed me forward to like, oh, if I could just, if I could just, you know, and then I didn't like you, I got married and continued life. So as you continued life in the quote, heterosexual world, I'm curious what you did with all of these feelings. Did you button them up? You didn't have any experiences? Where, where did you go with this? 
the feelings were always there. Once, once I'd had this friendship with him, the feelings remained, but I was always overshadowed with guilt. The biblical teachings that were so much a part of my thinking at the time were powerful, and they actually caused me to uh, attempt to be a straight male yep. simply because I was afraid not only of the guilt that haunted me for having the feelings, but the uh, threat of punishment, uh, the social press uh, punishment that would come if I uh, adventured into this uh, world of homosexuality. And then what was the thing that <clears throat> really changed for you? Like you finally just realized, okay, I can't do this. Actually, it took a very, very long time to get to that point. Uh, the woman that I married was a, a very loving and uh, later on in life, when I finally came out to her, willing to sacrifice her own life to remain as my wife for 15 years more after I came out to her. Wow. And how old were you when you came out to her? I came out to her when I was about uh, 40 years old. Okay. Yeah. Which is why one of the reasons I most wanted to have you like speak on this podcast, because there's a lot of the listeners who are guys that are 40 years old and older who are just starting to go through this transition. Yes, a lot of them listen to Life Uncloseted, the other podcast, but I felt like this is such a valuable story because there's many guys who hit this 30s, late 30s, early 40s, late 40s, early 50s, even 60s, where suddenly it's like, okay, I've got to do something. You know, I can't live this way. But I'm curious, and this is where I'd love for you to kind of share the excerpt from the book. Like, what was it like when you finally shared this piece about your life with your parents? Because I know there's a, a line in the book, a couple of minutes that we're going to let you just kind of read that part from the book. Um, so why don't you read and then we'll have a little conversation about, you know, what it was really truly like for you when you came out to your parents. Ah, sure thing. Um, I was 57 years old when I came out to my parents. And this is the uh, this is what I have written in my book about the moment that I went into their home to tell them that I was gay. By morning's light, I had made the decision. When I arrived at my parents' home, their questioning faces made it clear they were anxious about what I had to say. Anxious for a good reason. I had never called ahead to ask for a coffee invitation. Our strained looks were early warning signals as we exchanged routine greetings. Something disagreeable was going to take place. My parents knew I wouldn't have made an appointment to spread good news. I would have blurted it out days ago over the phone. Without the customary joyful pleasantries and other niceties, which usually created a preamble to family conversations, we sat together in a circle in their living room, like ticket holders at a church raffle waiting for the lucky number. Dad's just washed satiny gray hair glistened in the kitchen light. A tan sports shirt and dark brown haggard pants dressed his ample body. The skin under his aging brown eyes drooped. His customary smile was gone. He and I bent forward toward each other on our elbows and away from the backs of our lazy boys. Mom sat utility pole straight and silent on a light blue velveteen armchair brought in from their bedroom. She was dressed in her Saturday shopping outfit, black slack pants and white long sleeve blouse with black cufflinks. 
I could tell from the stress lines on their foreheads and the inquiring look in their eyes, they were hoping for good news, but somehow they knew the odds were against it. Mom and dad stiffened in preparation for the message. I spoke. I want to be the one to tell you. My wife and I are going to live separately. I'm gay. The words spurted out of me like a puncture in a garden hose, only powder dry. Color drained from their faces. Dad sank back into his chair. His jaw tightened. One eyebrow began to twitch. Mom moved her hands from her lap to the arms of her chair and gripped the ends. Her eyes closed. They sat as mannequins, silent, immobile, arms and legs fixed in place, their world in jeopardy. And that's how I came out to my parents. What a big moment and what beautifully written words. So as that unfolded and then suddenly you said those words, <clears throat> I'm always curious for you or anybody who finally says, okay, I finally said it. What was the feeling right afterwards? Well, you know, all of my life up to that point, I'd been afraid of my parents um, withdrawing their love from me. And I knew the importance of judgment in religion and how mm -hmm. judgment if it's negative judgment, critical judgment, often deprives a person of love. And so yeah. when I entered that moment in my life, I was, I was panicky about the thought that I was willing to take the chance and yeah. lose their love by telling them the truth. So um, I was, of course, was on edge. And the response from my father, <clears throat> from my father was totally unexpected. It was hoped for, but unexpected. And what he did was he got up from his chair and walked over to me and he said, son, I don't know why things happen the way they do, but I want you to know that I love you. And that was the end of our conversation for that moment. It didn't end there, of course, right. because my father could never make peace with my homosexuality. And near the end of his life, and I've, you'll read about this in my book, at the end of his life, he was on dialysis, and I, I went there to be with him uh, the three days a week that he sat in the dialysis chair. And on one of the days near the end of his life, he, he was very silent for about half an hour. And then finally, he spoke to me and he said, you know, son, the saddest day in my life was the day you told me you were gay. And that memory, of course, lingers um, uh, today. It circulates in my thinking from time to time. It's a bit of the bitterness and sadness that he faced because he could never make peace with my homosexuality. But it's interesting, James, because so much of and what a lot of us finally learn when we finally come to peace with it, which I don't like you, there's times that this stuff still lingers. And then as soon as I'm like, okay, but, but, but that's, that's not about me. That's about them. And that's the hardest part to start to learn is when somebody else can't come to terms with it. Yes, we may have created the situation, so to speak, but we are not responsible for how they choose to respond and walk through their own experience around this. And that was a tough lesson for me to learn. It was one of the things I struggled with the most. 
because I wanted them to accept it. And I wanted people to like, you got to do this until I realized, Hey, that's not my job. And B, they have the right to feel however they want. What I get to choose is how I react to how they react to who I am. And I can't make this better for them. I can show up when they want to make it better, but it is not my job to make it better for them. And that was such a hard part for me because I'm like, I'm a people pleaser. I'm an obliger. I want to make everybody happy. And I don't say what I just said to like be a jerk. It's just for my own sanity and for our own love towards ourselves. And I love the name of your book, Judge Me, Judge Me Not. As I was like reading it and starting to like prepare for this, I was like, this, the title alone is about how we can not judge ourselves and be at peace. Because if we're not at peace with ourselves, it opens that doorway for everyone else to not be at peace with us. So as you've worked through this and, and started to come to terms with this, what's the lesson you've learned about accepting yourself and being where you well, are? <clears throat> what you've just said about um, not being able to, not accepting responsibility for other people's behavior. It took me a long time to get to that point, but I think that's where I was when I came out to my parents, mm -hmm. that I made the decision that I can't protect them. And it isn't worth the price I have to pay to live in secrecy. Right. Because essentially leaving in, living in secrecy to me was just simply living a lie. Right. So what, um, what I think finally happened is that I came to the point where I said, I'm not responsible for the way other people react to my homosexuality, but I'm not going to live in the closet any longer. Right. And I, I decided... Uh, the pain of living in the law in the closet and living the lie was worse than the chastisement I might be uh, receiving or the loss of contact with family members that might come as a result of coming out of the closet. And I did, in fact, lose contact. But I thought in the back of my mind that if they really can't accept me as I really am, then that link is not essential to my life. Right. And in fact, the negative energy that comes from that is a detriment to finding happiness. So in the long run, I did lose my brother. And um, uh, he, um, he does not like to communicate with me. I have lost uh, one son uh, who hasn't communicated with me since I, I came out to my wife years and years ago. Uh, I have two really close relationships with two children, which are quite rewarding, and they quite understand and quite uh, quite often communicate with me. But I'm in a good place because I made that decision. It was like being set free to yeah. come out and to say, okay, now I can live uh, as a gay male and, and seek a lifetime partner. And in the book, I had a rough time finding a lifetime partner as, as the readers will find out. Yeah. Uh, but I am in a relationship now that's quite rewarding. But along the way, you also, and it's interesting how through the years as I've coached people through this experience of coming out and being themselves, and even if it's not somebody who's LGBTQ, <clears throat> it's always interesting to see when we start to own ourselves and <clears throat> no longer take responsibility for other people's reactions. And, and I'm not talking about being an asshole either. I mean, there's a, that's a whole different ballgame. But there's always something that shows up that says, I want you to do something even more. I want you to be something even bigger. 
And there was a, a big event right after Matthew Shepard's whole heinous murder and everything happened that really inspired you to do something else. So I'd love you to take the listeners into that experience because this it's like one of those moments where you really started like, this is who I am. This is how I'm going to show up in the world. Yes, Matthew Shepard um, certainly changed my life. What happened was that um, if I back up from that moment, uh, just a, a short distance, it was at the end of the school year, um, the year before I actually retired from teaching. And I went to a meeting of um, a group, uh, a, a group of citizens who were meeting to try to bring people together in the community. And it was an anti-hate commission. I went to the meeting one night and I heard a member of that commission uh, tell stories about gay men that I thought were totally inappropriate. He mentioned that policemen lured young boys into their squad cars to molest them. He said his parting words were, if I were a teacher, I mean, if I were a parent of, of, of children who were in the classroom of a gay teacher, I would pull them out. And uh, that really upset me because at the time I was a gay teacher uh, who was in the closet, but I was still a gay teacher and I was really offended, really hurt to think that a parent would pull kids out of my classroom simply because I was a gay teacher. So I went home, thought about it and decided that I would write a letter to the editor of the Bakersfield, California newspaper where I was living in Bakersfield and, and protest this member of the the anti-hate commission speaking out against uh, homosexuals. The result of that uh, was that there were several articles were published during the summer. And when I returned to school in September, my last year of teaching, um, the superintendent and the principal came to my room one day while I was preparing for lessons and notified me that they had begun to take students out of my classroom because uh, parents had decided that I would be a bad influence for their children. That led to um, the middle of October when by then about 15 kids had been taken from my class and put in the study hall rather than to receive their science instruction from me. Wow. At that time, middle of October, um, that would be 1998, Matthew Shepard was murdered. And the articles about Matthew Shepard's death um, caused me to ask myself, am, am I part of the problem for, that caused his death? By keeping silent, am I allowing this abuse of homosexuals to continue? Isn't it more responsible for me to come out of the closet and to then work for the benefit of, of gay men yep. or other members of the LGBTQ community? And that's what I decided to do. And what took place at that moment was that I um, decided to file a complaint with the Labor Board of California, uh, citing that I had been discriminated against by the removal of students. Mm -hmm. that, um, that notoriety um, caused me to be um, on the front page of the newspaper many times in the next six to seven months which caused more parents to take kids out of my classrooms. Yeah. Uh, what actually happened uh, to bring it to a close is the fact that 
um, the California Teachers Association provided a lawyer for me to work with the school board and to um, be prepared to go to court if the labor board, um, uh, depending on the labor board's decision. If the labor board decided in my favor, then I would be able to take the school board to court and, and file legal, legal action against them. If they found against me, then I would have to accept the labor board's decision, to, uh, which was um, they would want me to simply um, stay out of the classroom. They want to remove me from the classroom until I retired. Uh, what happened was that the labor board found in my favor and they gave the school board 10 days to settle with me. Mm. By that time, it was March of 99. I'd been out of the classroom since January because of the emotional impact caused, caused me to decide to uh, not return to the classroom on sick leave. Mm -hmm. But the board was already, had already notified me they would not approve of the sick leave and they would not, that would, that they would work towards my, um, my firing. Mm -hmm. That would, that would um, also affect my retirement and so on. But um, when they found out that the, the labor board approved uh, my, uh, my complaint, they settled in 10 days, restored my sick leave, restored my retirement, and we made a compromise. It was already March. The, my students had had a substitute since January, and I had decided that would not, I didn't want to go back into the classroom and be right. another disruptive influence. So. Um, I took a desk job until June, and at that time I retired. Before then, um, Maria Shriver asked to interview me for the national television, and that you, I think, are already, already aware of. And she asked, um, he, she asked me about my experiences with that school board, and in general, probed the issue of homosexuality um, in the, the educational uh, training, uh, not training, but among, uh, among teachers. Mm -hmm. I um, I think I opened up to her, tried to tell her what it was like, and I think the pur the purpose of that that um, video that she prepared, uh, I hope, taught people around the United States what a difficult situation it was to be uh, regarded as unfit to teach. And it's so interesting, James, as we sit here in this. Interesting world we sit in now, all these years later, um, and to see that you were viewed as unfit to teach because of your sexuality, but here we sit with being unfit to teach because we want to teach what really happened in history or why Black lives may matter or what being opposed to any of this stuff that's going on in our world. And it really shows that we really haven't come that far regardless of what the issue is. People can be told they can't be who they are because of what they believe or a stance <clears throat> they may take. And yet here we are again. Unfortunately, I see that happening all the time. It hasn't changed much in my entire lifetime. Nope. Nope. If it weren't for some of the, the, the legal action that's taken place, uh, that, uh, an example would be gay marriage. Yep. The um, there would be almost no change in the society mm -hmm. that I live in. Yep. Yep. And I see it all the time, too. And I'm not I'm not I mean, I shouldn't say I'm not concerned because I just I live I live my life. I don't hide who I am. But you and I are both we're both white males. So the thing that's interesting to me is 
we can walk down the street and a lot of a lot of gay men can do this. We can walk down the street and nobody's going to know we're gay because because unless we tell somebody we're gay, they don't really know, you know. But yet on the flip side, when we look at our brothers and sisters of color, there's nothing they can do about who they are. But yet the moment, even like in the moment of recording this podcast, as people hear these conversations and I see it, not that like I'm some celebrity, but I'm pretty out there. I get out on a lot of channels and I have my own haters that like, you're just, uh, you know, you're horrible. You ruin people's lives. I'm like, well, that's your perspective, you know? I think I actually make a lot of people's lives a lot better just because I bring these conversations to the world where it's like, what does it matter who I am and where I am in my world and who I go to bed with at night? I don't care about who you're going to bed with at night. And if I did, I probably would need to have my head examined because I really have better things to think about. And I think that's the reason, one of the reasons I really wanted to have this conversation with you because you've gone through a lot of stuff. You've been in the public eye, you've taken a stand. And yet here you are today, still willing to say, this is who I am. This is how I show up. And I'm so glad you've put this all together in your book the, that just came out again, I'm going to just say in September of 2021. What is one of the things you're most proud of by getting this book finally out into the public? Well, in the beginning and, and, and continuing through four years of writing, yeah. I always hoped that my story would help closeted gays decide how to proceed with their lives. Mm-hmm. And so I, I'm hoping that my storyline, my desire is my storyline will do in fact, will in fact help them make decisions about their lives. I realize that whether you stay in the closet or whether you come out of the closet, there's a price to pay. Yep. And um, I, I believe that my story will help uh, closeted gays and other, other members of the LGBTQ community, many of whom are in the closet in a sense, yes. help them understand that there is, not only is there hope for a better life, but it's a reality that they can achieve a better life if they will come out of the closet. Yeah. And, and that's, I that's what I had, yeah, sorry, that think, was what I hoped would happen with my book. Well, and that's, that's one of the most beautiful things too, is whether it's about coming out late in life, I have another friend who... He just recently uh, wrote a book that came out earlier this year about the journey to fatherhood as a gay man and adopting kids. And, you know, there's hundreds of books that come out every day that it's like, I'm just sharing my story to help somebody, hopefully, even if it's just one person. I mean, when Frankly, My Dear, I'm Gay came out years ago, I think it's been six years ago since that book came out. Somebody said to me, well, what are you most wanting to get out of this book? I'm like, not really anything. I just wanted to share my story. And if it happens to help somebody, Hey, I'm really cool with that. And it's done more than that. I mean, it hasn't, it hasn't made me a national best-selling author, but there's a lot of people who have read that book. And a lot of people that I know have snuck it onto their Kindles so that nobody knows they're actually reading that book. I don't feel bad that that book isn't like out there in a lot of bookstores because it's subject matter that a lot of people like, I'd really like to read this, but I don't want anybody to know I'm reading this. And that's okay too. But what I know for messages like yours and mine is somebody somewhere is sitting out there feeling like nobody understands, nobody gets this, yet that's why we do what we do. That's why we write these books. That's why we put this out there is because if I can help one person realize you are not alone, 
and not to say, oh, get over it. There's hundreds of thousands of us that have come out. That's not the point. Somebody needs to realize they are not alone. And when they read your book or my book or any of these books about coming out late in life, just to help them get through the next day. You know, Rick, there's another audience too that I hope um, I am able to reach. And that's the audience of, of uh, parents who mm-hmm. don't understand their, gray ki- their gay kids. Yes, I'm hoping that some of my life experiences will give them insight into their own par- parenting yes. and uh, allow them to continue to love their child, even though they may not understand what's happening with that child as they become an adult homosexual. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and I, I remember thinking through that when I was writing my book and there's a couple of chapters in there about, okay, but what about the others? You know, how do I help the others kind of come to grips? And as a PFLAG speaker, one of the things we always used to talk about in our speakers bureau is the moment we come out, everybody else around us goes back into the closet. Not always, but there's a lot of, oh, now I got to figure out this. And and I feel like that's a big valuable piece of this journey is helping other people come to terms. Again, I can't control their reactions, but if I can help them like, okay, how can I help you understand? How can I help you get through this? Because I've been preparing. I mean, at my, when I came out, I'd been preparing. Well, I came out at 19 and then I went back in the closet. But when I came out at 36, I'd been preparing for this for 36 years of my life to finally go do this. It was easier for me, but it was harder for everyone around me from my young kids to my ex-wife, to my parents and everybody else. And then I learned to navigate through this, but I'm glad you brought that up because I think this is a key element to any of these stories is creating the levels of understanding and empathy and seeing something when I speak on stages, one of the things I say to the college crowd is I know you're not, you know, 95% of you are probably not LGBTQ, but 100% of you could be on track to wake up at 30, 40, 50, 60 and going, I wish I'd really been myself, whatever that looks like. That's why I want to speak to you. I want you to choose to be yourself from this moment forward and always choose yourself in a very loving, beautiful way, not as a jerk way, because the more we are who we are, the better, I believe, the better people we are on the planet. So, so I'm so excited that this book is out. I'm really glad and happy for you. Um, what's next? I think you got something else you're working on in the works, a little fiction book, maybe? Well, yes, I'd, I'd like to continue writing. Um, writing is a, a very rewarding activity for me yeah, at, yeah. Uh, at 84 years of age. And um, the, um, the, the, the memoir meant a lot to me, but I've, I, I think I've said what I needed to say in the memoir. But I have awesome. lots of other stories in the back of my head, uh, some fictional, some based on reality. Yeah. And I like to keep writing. That's awesome, James. Well, we will have links to the book and everything where everybody can get a copy if they want. And one of the things I always like to do with my fellow authors is anybody who would like a copy of the book, please email me at rick at rickclemens.com. And whoever is the first person to say, I'd love a copy of James book, I will button it up and get it sent to you on my dime. I like to always contribute to the success. And, um, would love to get it in somebody else's hands. So um, again, James, thank you so much for being here. I've loved this conversation. So glad we got connected. And I hope the book does exactly what you said. 
influences somebody else to go live their life and be who exactly they are, man. Thanks for the opportunity. Oh, of course, man. I really enjoyed the conversation. That's a wrap for 40 plus gay men, gay talk, where size doesn't matter. We drop our bullshit, get over our screwed up fears, make bold moves and live life without apologies. Don't forget to join us on Facebook at 40 plus gay men, gay talk, where the conversations continue.